0: How many of you in the room have uh, read The Economist in the last couple of months? Okay, good. That's good. So I don't have to explain what The Economist is or anything like that. But I'll I'll give a little bit of the background as we go through. Where's the whole view presentation here? Here we go. Um, Isn't there one that says slideshow? Sorry, this is not my native format here. Um, Um, So you want to go down to that part? This guy? Yeah. Okay. Wait. Ah, okay. All right. So. How many of you are special readers? How many of you have the app or get the email or look at it? Okay. How about who's got the Economist app? Just a regular Economist app. Else? Okay. Okay. So in 2015, we decided we needed something uh, that was that was new for the Economist—a short format publication that would, as as Mira said, stay true to our editorial values. that would give readers the analysis, the writing the global perspective that they hopefully get from our print edition, but in a very condensed, short, daily format for a weekly that is 175 years old as of last year, uh, founded in 1843 by James Wilson, a Scottish hat maker to fight for the cause of free trade. To say what traditional is, uh, is uh, we're as far from a startup as you get. Mm-hmm. I, I was asked to go to some dot com buzzy conference and they were clearly Screening journalists by asking them how long their publication had existed, uh, kind of, and I wrote 175 years in the uh, in the uh, form. We've been around a while, so innovation is not exactly what you probably think of when you think of The Economist. Instead, you might think of more tradition or heritage or things we've been doing for a long time. But we did want to keep up with the world, and in particular, um, some of our competitors in this space. So this is what you get when you open the Espresso app, um, as you'll see. It's got uh, five headlines there at the top, and then you see this thing the world in brief. But what I'm going to do is just kind of walk through it really quickly. It's meant to be a quick read. Just like an espresso in coffee form. it's meant to get your eyes open in the morning fairly briefly before you start the rest of your day. Now, uh, I've said the word today, and it's at the top there. And it's also kind of small print here, today's agenda. The important thing about espresso that is different from a lot of our competitors is that it's very much focused on what's coming up. Not what's happened yesterday, but what's going to happen today. And it turns out that planning tomorrow's news is a lot harder than writing about yesterday's. Uh, So I'll come come to that a little bit. But that little red today's agenda is kind of a very small and subtle signal that this isn't just what's in the news. This is what's going to be in the news. One question I like to answer. What do I need to know about what's happening in the world? This is in today's edition. This is about the American and Chinese trade talks. The trade war uh, has resulted in some meetings in Washington that are going on today, Um, but they're very much gonna be dominated by the issue of Huawei. Technically, slightly separate because it's not part of the trade war, but it's going to dominate those bilateral trade talks in Washington, and so in 155 words or less, our correspondent will tell you trade talks are happening but in, real, in reality, they're going to be dominated by the issue of Huawei, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, who's been arrested in Canada. America has requested her extradition. And, and this has sort of poisoned the well of some of the trade talks. We try to get all this across very, very quickly. Uh, you can see if you read down this far, it appears prosecutors have little concrete evidence of the greatest suspicion that Chinese spooks use Huawei gear to eavesdrop or that long-rumored ties to the People's Liberation Army are real. But if they can prove trade secret theft and bank fraud, Huawei will have plenty to fret about. It. That could mean a devastating ban on American firms selling it technology. And Canada has 30 days to assess America's extradition request. Okay. So this is today's news. This is what's going on today. But We also try to, in this very compact format, get in the analysis. Not just what's going to happen, but what is it going to be about. What does it mean? And even get out on the limb of prediction a little bit. Journalists are good at what did happen. We're not so trained for what is going to happen. But we encourage our writers to say, this is what might happen in the future. This is where our writers' expertise, hopefully they've been covering the beat for years and know a bit about their subject, can venture out on their limb and say, this is what's likely to go on. How should I think about it? One thing that makes The Economist different from a lot of the newspapers uh, and magazines you might know, you might get your news from, is that we're very straightforward about being an analytical and sometimes even opinionated publication. There's very much a point of view to most of our articles. In the paper, there's a a short black sub-headline that'll tell you, this is what this article is going to tell you, and it very often is a very pointed point of view. You can see in this one, from today's edition, we have a very sharp headline, Obituary of a Democracy. This is telling you that though Bangladesh's new parliament is taking its seats today, that this follows a sham election in which uh, the main opposition won only six seats after a very heavy thumb on the scales from every element of the Bangladeshi state. And so Sheikh Hasina, as a result, will start her fourth term. She will soon be the longest serving prime minister in South Asian history. And as we see it very clearly, as you can see in that headline, um, this is the end of what was once a, a vibrant democracy, at least for now. So, we don't hide having a point of view. We make it very clear what it is. It's very hard as a journalist not to have an opinion about your subject, but in some traditions, like the American one, you're very much supposed to pretend that you have no personal point of view. Um, we don't have any truck with that. We just get it right out there, so that if you say, hey, you guys have a bias, we're like, yeah, we put it in the headline. We're not trying to obscure anything. That carries over from the paper to Espresso. Oh whoa, we've run into an ad. Sorry about that. Um, as you flip through Espresso, you will run into this, um, and that's because um, about forty, uh, a little bit more than forty percent of the uh, the revenue from Espresso is ad funded. So we um, will you will slide past this guy as as you go through. It's important to us that um, you know that Espresso makes a return on its own basis. And we can talk about finances if anybody's curious about that later. Um, but this is a, a freestanding product as well as an inducement to subscribe to The Economist. The advertisers, however, are very strictly separated from editorial. The Economist, we are in separate buildings, all the way across London from each other. Advertising salespeople are strictly forbidden to have any influence on content. At the end of and beginning of Espresso, you'll see today's edition is sponsored by so and so. They have absolutely nothing to do with editorials. To be fully clear, there's an ad, there's a sponsored by, but there's otherwise zero contact between commercial and editorial. Another one today, it's going to be uh, 25 degrees, no, sorry, 31 degrees below zero Celsius in Chicago today. Now, you wouldn't normally expect to get your weather from The Economist, but what is this chunk doing? We call these pieces chunks, by the way. I hate that word, but uh, that's what we call them. What is this chunk telling us? It tells us that the so-called polar vortex is possibly a result of climate change. As the air around the equator warms, it pulls colder air from poles. So despite this being a, an unbelievably cold day, possibly the coldest day in Chicago's history, it is a result of climate change. Indeed it's a direct result of global warming. So uh, we tell you what's gonna happen, but right around here we start to tell you what it means. That the upper Midwest in the United States, those very cold places already, Minnesota, Chicago, around the Great Lakes and stuff, can start preparing for the kind of weather you see typically up in, further into Canada. So, even with a weather-related chunk, we're trying to give you something of a piece of analysis that you can take away. We'll then slide by um, a quick look at the indicators of the markets. Um, These are just a snapshot. They're, They're taken about 15 minutes before we publish espresso. Um, so you can have a very quick look at what the prices are. This is not reactive, these are not changing, this will not tell you what the Dow is at this second. It'll tell you what it was at 15 minutes before uh, you loaded the espresso out. So when I say not to pros, this is for the fairly casual markets reader who, if you see a bunch of red, you'll know yesterday was a bad day in the markets, and if you see a bunch of green, it was good. If you see a mix, it was a mix. Um, but this is, this is something of an add-on, not what I consider one of our core elements, and we may in fact even be getting rid of this market section in future. Um, it's, it's not worked out very well for us because we get the data from a third party provider. We can't easily quality control it, and there's been some issues with some of that. So this is, kind of on, um, this is kind of on probation right now. And if you make it to the very end, we have a little quote of the day. We, uh, we look for someone who is either birthday or uh, death day is on the day of the publication and we find something that they said. Not something we necessarily endorse, it's just something to provoke a little bit of thought. We call it a zinger, I don't know why, but that's what we call it. And one little fun feature of Espresso is you have to have read all of the five chunks and the news summary of the previous day in order to get to the zinger. Now, why did we make this 155 word format when we're better known for a sort of more traditional, much longer form print publication? Well, in one, uh, for one, it's partly obviously, a response to competitors. Top-end publications like the New York Times and people we consider competitors were starting to uh, produce newsletters, uh, usually in email format in your inbox and, and in sort of compressed form of their journalism. What they were doing was largely taking the first paragraph of a piece or even sending whole pieces out as newsletters. We wanted to do something different. Everything in espresso is written for espresso. Every once in a while, we'll take a piece and compress it ourselves, but that'll be handwritten anew from a longer piece, and that 19 out of 20 pieces are written for espresso natively. They're written in that 155 word format. We obviously want it to serve as something of an on-ramp or an entry to subscription for the full economist. We want people maybe to think about starting with espresso, which is a small financial commitment and a small commitment of your time, and if they like it and want more, they can then upgrade to the full print or digital subscription. Um, It's also just pure marketing. Um, You can download the app for free, you can read one story a day for free, and as a result, people who otherwise don't subscribe can be introduced to our brand and to our style, to our point of view, to our writing, and so forth. And uh, finally, this is just to prove to ourselves that we can keep doing new things. We're 175 years old. We're the kind of publication that when we introduced color in 2002, People had a conniption and wrote us in it and said they didn't want to see color in the Economist. So um, we have a we have a reader base that's been with us often for a very long time. Their loyalty is a great asset to us. They don't they, you know they keep subscribing and they and you have some really great sort of baseload readership who stayed with us for a long time. Um, but they will take some innovation and we we like to kind of keep these new things going because we want to keep those readers but we want to add to them as well. So we want to reach young. Uh, digital-native type readers and others as well. Well, how are we doing? Um, Like I said, we launched Espresso in 2015, so we've had a little under four years to to look at the numbers. We have about 100,000 eyeballs on this a day. so uh, 200,000 eyeballs, assuming that most of our people have about two eyes. Um, That totals up to about 400,000 unique readers per month, and um, together they read about 18 million uh, pages of Espresso a month. So you can do the math and kind of reckon that people read on average something like one or two stories a day uh, of those 400,000, okay? About half of those readers are Economist subscribers, so Espresso is a a free offering for people who already pay for the Economist. Economist is not the cheapest subscription in the world, so in lots of ways we try to send the Economist subscriber the signal that we value them, we want them to stay, and Espresso is an extra that they get. Um, About a quarter of them read an email version. I've showed you the Espresso native app, but you can also sign up for an Espresso email which has the same content in your email. Inbox every day. The others read it primarily on the Espresso app. And finally, we've added Espresso to the Economist app overall, so it now appears at the very top of the main Economist app, where all of our other stuff is. So this is what the subscribers get, and those who are non-subscribers can either subscribe to Espresso only, cost five pounds five pounds a month now to get just Espresso, um, cost of a posh coffee you might think, and you get a a nice um, a nice publication every day, six days a week. Um, otherwise, if you don't subscribe, everyone can download the app and see up to one of the articles per day. What do we tell our journalists name for? This is the instructions we are giving our writers. We say, first look for a newspaper. Tell us in advance. It is very, very difficult to forward plan this thing, and yet it is crucial to what we do. So we're constantly hassling our correspondents, both our full-on staffers and our uh, network of freelancers to be sending us ideas in the future. If they are telling us on Wednesday, this is happening tomorrow, that's not good for us. We actually need to know well in advance because we have to fill this thing out come hell or high water every single day with five pieces. So we have to relentlessly be planning. We're looking for a news peg, something happening today that we can tell the reader about. But then we want that today peg, which is often a kind of an excuse to look at a wider story, a bigger, a longer running, more important story. The day's news may be something like I said, just an excuse to look at something bigger that's happening, and often we'll jump very quickly from that narrow peg to the wider thing. Ideally, we'll have what we call in-house a bugger me fact, uh, or a statistic, a number that says, whoa, makes you sit up, and if you remember nothing else from that, that 155 word chunk, you'll remember something about, you'll remember that striking fact or statistic. Not every chunk has one of these, but we aim to get one into every chunk. And then finally, at the very end, there should be a line or two at that very end, like I showed you with with Huawei there, that tells you this is kind of the this is the takeaway point. When you then meet somebody six hours later after work for drinks and the subject of Bangladesh's elections, or Huawei comes up, you have one thing that you can persuasively say, because you've got 150 words. You can you can kind of hold the floor for about 30 seconds uh, (laughs) on this subject. And it's great, because if you're the editor, it means you can hold the floor for about 30 seconds on on, on almost everything. And me mm-hmm. past that, I'm gonna run out of you things can to say. Do that. Yeah, I can always do that. <laughs> one of my skills. Uh, skills, I uh, skills in quotation marks, um, but it's very useful. It's very fun actually for, for the editors. Now what do we do as editors? There are uh, sort of two and a half of us, um, there are three people, two of us do other things as well, on the job. And one person is always just filling out that calendar. It's a full-time job to get news pegs into our calendar and to firm up commissions with writers and to remind them two days before that they're due to file the next day for the following day's edition and just run traffic. That person does nothing but, and we swap back and forth. So one week I'll do that job and then one week I will actually edit the chunks in question. So like I said, the other job is editing. You're actually getting this complex story into 155. We typically tell our writers to file us a little long. So everybody files with a bit of fat and a bit of fluff. It's just inevitable in writing. So we tell people to file us about 170, 180. Um, if they're very, very good and experienced, they can file right at 155. But if they're someone new, we tell them to file a little long because it's almost inevitable that there are words that don't need to be there. And when we're done with them, it will just be this tightly wound product. If it's perfect, there's not a single word extraneous, and all the analysis is there. There's also hopefully a bit of style, maybe a bit of humor, but it should be very. It should feel very lean. That's what I'm saying. It was like astronaut food. You know, when you take out all of the, you dehydrate it and you take out all the water, um, but you have all of the nutrition left because um, the astronauts have water on their spacecraft, right? But the steak is just freeze dried and shrunk into the smallest possible thing. Um, so it's kind of a freeze dried uh, piece of piece of journalism. Um, and we just run, we just run the ship all day, and man, it's it's very hectic. The Economist is a weekly. I like to think of as having kind of a gentlemanly or leisurely pace, you know, uh, at, at a week. A lovely, it's lovely to work on just a weekly if you have nothing else to do. It feels like time to think, time to come up with ideas. Nice long interview on a Friday, whatever it is. Espresso is daily. It feels a lot more like a daily newspaper. It's a lot more go go go, and so just getting these processes done. Everything goes back to the journalist who wrote it for a check of the edit, so they're okay with their edit. Everything goes to a fact checker. Every one of these. Unlike a daily newspaper, every word of this is fact checked. Uh, writing headlines. We like to be funny with our headlines where possible. Every once in a while we even succeed, most of the time corny puns, but every once in a while we come up with an okay word. Finding pictures. Uh, putting the stories in the right order. We do three regional editions. It's published 6 a.m in Asia, once again 6 a.m in Europe and a third edition, 6 a.m in the United States. So we can change the order of the stories, do different headlines and things like that for our different regional uh, issues. And there's just things like uh, writing the contents page, picking that quote that goes in the end, and so forth. This is, it doesn't look like a lot, I know, I, 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 but we're, working, we're <laughs> working our tails off, it's amazing. Uh, it's because of that daily rhythm, because of the constant need to come up with five new stories every single day, five or more, because there's five in each edition, but we might have seven stories, not all seven of which will run in all three editions. So I want to pivot a bit from Espresso specifically to economist writing a little bit more generally. How do we write for the economist? Well, you can go buy our style book. It's in a lot of bookshops and it's in the economist online shops. You can see the exact same guide that we give our journalists. Uh, you can get it for yourself. And what we really try to do is emphasize an, a, a terse but conversational style in which We choose short words, short sentences that don't overload the reader's brain in reading, and active vocabulary. So when I say short sentences, um, a bit of the psychology of reading is that when you're when you're reading a long sentence, your working memory is is being taxed. If you're ever told, if you ever have to remember somebody's phone number and they're reading it to you on the train, and they're like, oh it's 07825621113, 07825621113, you're like, oh God, that's more things than I can remember. You're kind of repeating it to yourself in your mind. That's your working memory being overloaded. It's very hard to remember, sort of 10 digits, right? The same thing goes for understanding a long and complicated sentence. Your brain has to keep all the sentence in the mind until it's finished, until the structure is complete. And so long and <coughs> embedded clauses, uh, multiply embedded clauses in the worst case, are very hard on the brain. Short sentences ones that end with a full stop frequently, are much easier to read. The material of The Economist may be finance, business, foreign politics, science, so the material's hard enough. We want to make the writing easy and ideally also pleasurable. Short words, it's very much part of our style to use the normal language that people talk in when they're at the pub or when they're having a conversation with a friend. Not the kind of vocabulary of bureaucrats or of academics or of advertisers or specialists. We want to use the ordinary words of playing conversation. When you use abstract words like a phenomenon that indicates this or an observation that suggests that, you can't see a phenomenon in your mind. You can't smell an observation. We try to use concrete things that can bring a mental image to mind. If you can see something in your mind, you can comprehend it more easily. There's a whole load of cognitive science behind it. We we didn't know that at the time we you know we started this style guide but now psychology and linguistics and cognitive science tell us this is a, an, an efficient way to write to write and to read. Finally, active vocabulary, syntax. We don't want to say the prime minister was convicted in an affair regarding the diversion of funds. We say the prime minister is in jail for stealing public money. Um, you can see the latter version just you can see a guy in jail. As soon as the word jail appears, you can see the bars. You can see the prison uniform. Um, you know, this affair was convicted as a passive structure regarding this and diversion of funds, which is a euphemism for taking something from where it was supposed to be. Um, we said, look, if we can put this in the plain language that people actually use, people will comprehend it better, they'll remember it better. So that's part of our style generally. And that goes especially for espresso, because we're trying to get everything into this very, very tight package. That means that everything that doesn't need to be there goes short sentences and short words absolutely. And getting the most complicated story, we can get you a 150 word version. No matter how complicated the Brexit negotiations and the backstop, in today's edition, I wasn't able to get it in this presentation, but we explained the amendments that were voted down and those that were passed in the commons last night. It can be done, I promise. We once had one on a physics breakthrough about the Schrodinger's cat paradox, and it was this very theoretical physics-based chunk that we got into a magnificent 150 words. I'm not sure I understood it, <laughs> but even afterwards. But by God, it was all there. And, and it's sort of, just like the, you know, reading a longer version of the schrodinger cat thing, it kind of, it doesn't make any sense, but it, it still kind of tickles the brain, and, and we've done it with every subject under the sun, right on down to theoretical physis- physics. So, never tell me it can't be done, it can. Um, this form of writing sharpens your writing extremely. One of my colleagues in D.C. likes to say it's the closest to poetry can get. Writing in this 150 word format. And he happens to be an outstanding writer. Uh, as an editor, it's been great editing practice because you see how much can go. For example, in, in, you know, and people are writing all the time, at firm X, which is entangled in a loss of the company Y, this which is can always be taken out. And if I've got 150 words and we're very strict about that, those are going out every single time because I've got two content words I want to keep somewhere else in that chunk, getting rid of every function word that doesn't need to be there. Same thing But he said that he would not make a it loses that. doesn't need to be there. Sometimes, in rare cases, taking it out can introduce ambiguity. In that case, I'm strict about keeping it there if it resolves an ambiguity. But in this case, losing it loses you. Absolutely nothing. And you can learn like an eagle eye to spot these things. And as the, in the first sub, the first pass through a piece, I'm taking out every word that doesn't absolutely have to be there. And you end up taking 10% off the word count right away. Then you can sub once again for content and then maybe you make some difficult decisions about a half sentence that may have real content to it, but it just has to go for, for life. But this is the first pass, just taking out the words that don't need to be there. Finally, all this that I've said is short sentences, concrete language, active vocabulary, losing the fluff. This is not dumbing down. Short sentences and short words is anything but dumbing down because getting complicated stuff, like I said, we do everything from finance to physics to science, and, you know, politics of places you know very little about. And the, the content is, is, is about as difficult as journalism gets in some ways. And yet, we've got to put it into good, comprehensible language. And doing that well, both as a writer and as an editor, is our stock and trade. And if we're doing it well, then people shouldn't feel that sense of difficulty reading about these difficult topics. They should feel like the ideas are just coming into their mind, because they're being put into a language that is natural. It's hard to do well, but we take a lot of pride in it. We work very hard at it. Sometimes we succeed better than others, but that's the core of writing for The Economist. And doing it in Espresso is like doing an extreme version of The Economist. So, um, that's the last thing I'll say about espresso, I'll keep it to about half an hour, which I'm very close to, but my other job is as the Johnson Columnist of uh, The Economist, which means that every two weeks, a column on language appears in the Books and Arts section at the end of The Economist. This is the illustration that went with the very first um, column, so that's Johnson himself. He's looking at L for lexicographer. Uh, Johnson described his own profession of lexicographer as a harmless drudge, Um, He was famous in his dictionary for uh, including these cheeky um, definitions. Lexicographer was a harmless drudge. He described oats as a food which in England feeds horses, but which in Scotland sustains the population, uh, and things like that. So um, we like to think that he did a very hard and technical job as a lexicographer, but that he also brought wit and style to his work. You can sit with John's dictionary and just read definition after definition, enjoyably and you can't do that with many dictionaries. We like to think, I like to think, that economists should aim for that kind of thing. So the column is named after him. A version of it ran in the 1990s when I was here doing my master's at Oxford for about two or three years. Um, It was not a great success at that time, we shuttered it. And then um, in 2010 I had the idea of starting a language blog and we decided to call it Johnson because we had this name already on the shelf. And that blog turned into a web column and then the web column turned into the print column. So that's the story of Johnson briefly, and I'm happy to answer any questions about that role as well. And so that's it, half an hour. Thank you very much, Lee.